0: Acts chapter 20, beginning at verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, "'You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, "'from the first day I came into the province of Asia. "'I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, "'although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews.' You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you, night and day, with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship.
1: Well, following on from the kids' talk, how can you tell if someone is a Christian? How do you know if someone is a committed follower of Jesus? Well, the Bible says the answer is very simple. Look at the life that they live. I mean, Jesus himself said that that was the case. He said it a number of times that you'll know a person by the fruit that they are producing in their life. Now, I don't want to suggest for a moment that it doesn't matter what you believe. I mean, the Bible's totally clear about that, that you need to place your trust in Jesus and accept the forgiveness that he offers through his death on the cross. And and I don't want to suggest for a moment that a Christian is always going to be living a perfect sin-free life that they'll never make a mistake. But a genuine follower of Jesus will live a changed life, a different life because of their faith in Jesus. They will live a noticeably different life because they are now followers of Jesus. There will be attitudes and behaviours that will set them apart from others, make them stand out because of the way that they live. There'll be things that they will do that will be different to their neighbours and their workmates and possibly even their family. There'll be things that they don't do because of their faith in Jesus. In this section of Acts that we're looking at today, we're seeing some lives that are quite dramatically changed because of faith in Jesus. But before we look at that, I just wanted to touch on something else that comes up all the way through the book of Acts but particularly in these two chapters that we're looking at today and that is the miracles that we see in the book of Acts. When you read through Acts you can't help but notice that there are accounts of miracles taking place, extraordinary things happening and these passages, the the two chapters that we're looking at today have more than their fair share of them. Miracles are there in the book of Acts but they're very often misunderstood by the church today. There are those who think that because they happened then, we ought to be expecting that they will happen now, and they think that we can actually just copy the miracles that we see in the book of Acts. Uh, Let's have a quick look at some of the miraculous things that happen just in the passage that we're looking at today, and then we'll try and draw some conclusions. Uh, Chapter 19, we have the, the miraculous act of Paul healing people. And not only are they healed, we're told that Paul's handkerchief is actually capable of healing people as well. you find it there, chapter 19, verse number 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Now, if people were to touch my handkerchief... I can guarantee you that you won't be healed. In fact, you could even catch something rather nasty by touching it. But that hasn't stopped quite a number of churches today from offering healing handkerchiefs. Uh, there are You can find those on the internet. Uh, here's one of the churches. Here's another one giving you all of the details about how you can receive your uh, healing prayer cloth. Uh, they're telling us that uh, uh, the pastor of the church has prayed over this cloth and for a small donation plus postage and handling, you can actually have one of these delivered to your own home. I've got to say, I think that's misunderstanding, first of all, what's happening in Acts, but it goes beyond that. Uh, chapter 20 of Acts, we find another miracle taking place. And I have to say, uh, for a preacher like me, this is one of those passages that gives me great comfort. Uh, Chapter 20, starting at verse number 7, let's quickly read through the account. On the first day of the week, they came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were meeting, and seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. Uh, When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Now, before we get to the detail of the story, I do find this immensely encouraging that people fell asleep during Paul's preaching. I don't feel so bad about those who fall asleep during my sermons. And yes, I do notice I'm up the front here, okay? (laughs) But... Paul was able to do this remarkable thing and bring this man back to life, even though he'd fallen from the third-story window. Then there's one more thing in chapter 19, uh, around verse 13, you'll find it. It's not so much a miracle as a bit of a supernatural event, but it explains something about miracles as well. Uh, Verse number 13, and let me read the account for you. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you, come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, But who are you? And then the man who had the evil spirit jumped them and overpowered them. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Now, in some ways, it's just a bizarre little story, isn't it? I mean, these guys have seen Paul or or heard about what it is that Paul is doing and healing people and casting casting out demons. So they've decided to try to do the same thing in the name of Jesus. They try to use the name of Jesus as though it's some kind of magic spell that they can say abracadabra and they will be able to therefore cast out the demons. I attended a church a few years ago where... The last thing that happened in their meeting on Sunday evening was a a big healing time. Uh, People came forward and the pastor uh, was up up the front uh, uh, claiming that he was able to heal people in the name of Jesus. But the sad thing was in visiting this church that most of the people knew that when the healing bit started, well, church was almost at an end. And people were getting up out of their seats and going around and catching up with people and saying hi to people that they hadn't seen all week or perhaps even longer. So the whole church was up moving around and all talking while the minister was at the front of the church and almost yelling into the microphone, what we are seeing here tonight is the power of the Holy Spirit to heal people. But the people who were in the congregation seemed to be oblivious to what was happening on the stage or or at least didn't care about what was happening. See, they see it every week. It had become a little bit ho-hum. I mean, they saw people healed last week. They knew they were going to see more people healed again, again next week. So they weren't terribly interested in what was happening on the stage. That's not what was happening back in Paul's day. Miracles were rare and by no means an everyday thing. And God was doing extraordinary things that were amazing. Everyone, there was nothing ho hum about what was happening in these miracles. So the miracles that we see in Acts they serve a purpose. They show us the, the, the credentials of the apostle Paul, and they show us the credentials of the gospel message that he is preaching. There it is, chapter nineteen, verse number eleven. Look at what it said. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. It's God who is at work doing these miraculous things. And they're being done to establish that Paul is an apostle who comes with God's authority. You can tell because God is doing these things through the apostle Paul. And it's interesting to note the kinds of miracles that we see Paul doing in the book of Acts. Healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead, uh, people touching his clothes and being healed. Sound at all familiar? They're the same things that Jesus was doing. And I don't think it's a coincidence Jesus has commissioned Paul to be his representative, to be his apostle, and to be an apostle meant that you carried the very authority of the person who has sent you. And it's pretty clear that Paul carries the authority of Jesus because of the things that he is able to do. Churches that want to sell the healing hanky for a small donation plus postage and handling, well, they've turned it into a joke, haven't they? These miracles confirm Paul's authority. They confirm the authority of the message that Paul is preaching. And and let's remember, miracles don't save people. Miracles can't do that. People are are saved by responding to the message about Jesus, by placing their faith and their trust in him. And miracles serve to point people to Jesus. If you had to try and sum up what the book of Acts is about, I think gospel to the end of the earth would be a good summary. We see the message about Jesus being preached right at the very beginning in, the, in Jerusalem. Then we see it go to Judea, the surrounding areas, to Samaria further still, and ultimately we see it being taken to Rome. And when the message about Jesus is preached in the book of Acts, there are two things that will follow. First, there will be lives that will be changed by the gospel. And second, sadly, there will be opposition to the gospel. And again, in these two chapters that we're looking at today, we see the same thing again. Lives that are changed by the gospel and opposition to the gospel. But let's start with the changed lives. When people place their trust in Jesus, there, are, there is going to be a change for them. They won't remain the same people. Sometimes the changes may be small, but sometimes the changes are going to be rather dramatic, as we see in this passage. For some people, the change will be that they no longer attend the synagogue on Saturday, but that they join together with the believers in Jesus on the Sunday. But for others, the change is spectacular. Paul arrived in Ephesus, and as usual, what he did was he went to the synagogue, and they gave him a reasonable hearing. He taught there for three months, we're told in the synagogue, trying to show from the pages of the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah. But finally they asked him to leave and to no longer come back to the synagogue. So he went to a lecture hall in town and rented it for the next two years. And he preached the gospel there. Pick it up, chapter 19, verse number 18. For those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who'd practised sorcery bought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, that the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. See, when these people who lived according to other religions and practised other kinds of things like sorcery, when they come to that point of faith in Jesus, their life is now changed. They realise that Jesus is Lord and their old way of life is no longer acceptable. And so for those people, there's a kind of cost involved, isn't there? They take their scrolls, they take their books of sorcery and there's a book burning that takes place. Luke says the total value is 50,000 drachmas. One drachma was around about a day's wages. So what we're talking here is probably something in the order of $10 million worth of books being burned. But this is not just a book burning. Don't get the wrong idea. This is real and genuine change that has taken place in the lives of these people. Things that they'd obviously spent an enormous amount of money on, they now recognise are worthless. And worse than worthless, they're leading people away from Jesus. So they want these things gone. They can see the consequences of following Jesus, and that change might be difficult. It may even be costly but it's a cost that they're willing to pay. You get the impression that Paul must have been a pretty thick-skinned guy. I don't don't know how you picture him, but I always imagine him as really not caring too much about what other people think. Maybe that's the way that he was, maybe not. Because he certainly faced a lot of opposition, didn't he? I mean, it seems that everywhere he goes, people are going to be opposed to what it is that he's saying. There, There will be people who will be rejecting him and worse. What he faced in Ephesus was serious. Uh, They they were pretty understanding in the synagogue uh, and even uh, had a fairly amicable end to his time there. But then he faced opposition like he'd never seen before. Uh, Many cities in the Roman Empire had their own particular gods that were worshipped and Ephesus had the god Artemis uh, and she was worshipped by the Ephesians and in fact... This is the site of the old temple of Artemis in Ephesus. Little bits of it still there. uh, But this is what they know it would have looked like back in its day. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, this temple. Uh, This is no small thing. So religion is big business in Ephesus. And the idol trade was a big employer. If you've got your Bible, have a look at chapter 19, verse 23 and 24. A silversmith by the name of Demetrius called a Stop Work Meeting for the Amalgamated Metal Workers and Idol Makers Union, they know that their livelihood is now at stake. So they grab two of Paul's companions and drag them to a theatre, uh, a big public meeting place. The theatre is actually still there in Ephesus today. This is what it looks like. They reckon it would have seated, in its day, would have seated around 25,000 people. And they dragged Paul's companions there, and a huge number of people followed, on, followed along. Like most unions, they weren't exactly sure what they were going to do. They were pretty sure what they didn't want to happen, but they didn't know what they were going to do. I love what it says in verse 32. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. That's beautiful, isn't it? Well, the town clerk finally gets up and addresses the crowd and says, if you've got a genuine grievance against these people, then deal with it in the proper way, not by starting a riot. Change is not always going to be easy and the change that the gospel brings is going to meet with opposition. Paul spent the best part of three years in Ephesus He established the church there, he taught them but then came the time to leave. This is the longest that Paul would spend in any town during his ministry and in many ways this would be the church that's built with the best foundation. I mean, they've got the Apostle Paul to themselves for the best part of three years. But the final thing he does for the church in Ephesus is talk to the elders And that was the passage that Lyndall read for us this morning. And he gives them a warning. Chapter 20, and have a look at verse number 29. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. It's sad, isn't it? They've seen the opposition that Paul faced from outside of the church, but Paul now warns them about the opposition that they're going to face from inside the church. That there'll be people who are divisive, undermining the church. There'll be people who will doing it to, do it to form their own little power base, to take their own little group of people away with them. People will be the source of division and disunity in the church, and I'm sure you've seen that in churches. And most of the time, the people who cause this division, they have no interest in the gospel. They're just concerned about their position and their pride. They don't want to strengthen the church or make it more effective in its witness for Jesus. As I said, it's a a sad thing that Paul has to give them this warning, but it's a warning that we need to be aware of as well. But let me finish on a positive note. Let me go back to those changed lives. How can you tell if someone is a Christian? How do you know if someone is a committed follower of Jesus? Well, the Bible says, look at the way that they live. You'll see the fruit of what they believe in the life that they live. Now not many of us are going to be involved in a $10 million book burning as a result of our faith in Jesus. But for some people the changes will be costly. I met a guy a few years ago and I may have mentioned this story before. He was married and had two children and a mortgage, just an average guy living in the western suburbs of Sydney. But he'd become a Christian and soon after becoming a Christian he realised that he couldn't keep doing his job the way in which he'd been doing it. It wasn't that he'd been doing illegal things, but he knew that the things that he were doing were at least unethical and probably immoral. So he went and spoke to his boss and pointed out the dilemma that he now felt about the situation that he was in. And the boss completely understood what he was saying and he made the choice very, very clear for him. He said, keep doing your job the way you've been doing it or go and clear your desk out. How do you walk in the door of your house that day and explain to your wife that you no longer have a job? But here's a guy who's taking seriously what it means to follow Jesus. Here is someone who is serious about living a changed life because of his faith in Jesus. And being serious about following Jesus can sometimes be costly How can you tell if someone is a Christian? Well, you can see it in the way that they live their life. Christians are committed to living that changed life as followers of Jesus. Not just changed once, but continually changing to become more like Jesus. Here's the encouragement that Jesus gives in his own words and then Peter picks it up as well. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And then Peter says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us.